Don't you wish that uh, oftentimes that we would live as well as we sing? We sing great stuff about how holy God is and how wonderful He is and how smart He is and how all-knowing He is. And yet, every week when we gather for worship, we, we gather to confess our sins because we have not lived up to His plan. It's part of human nature is the old man and the new man duke it out. And it's certainly true that we have to trust God's plan in every area of our life. Even when we talk about finances. And this morning as we start a new sermon series on understanding that this is just a radical truth that God has said He has come to bring us an abundance of life and overflowing joy. And yet the majority of people They don't sense that abundance and they don't sense that joy. And they're stressed because they're they're, they're missing out on a very important issue. And so as we start a new sermon series, we start with a very important first principle. And this principle applies in many different ways. And the principle is this, that we can never grow spiritually, relationally, Financially, without contentment, without being content, without trusting God in the midst of your circumstances. Now, I know we have a few iPhone users here in the audience. I hear the Snickers choir, I heard that. And I know that you have a perfectly good phone right now. But I also know the new iPhone releases in what? Two days. Thank you, Reed. (coughs) Exhibit A, ladies and gentlemen. And you're going to get rid of a perfectly fine working phone to have the latest and greatest thing. Contentment is a difficult thing. Now, as you walked into the sanctuary this morning, you have, or you should have, in your hands an edible sermon illustration. Because we want to demonstrate part part of the reason that we're doing this is the problem when we talk about honoring God with our finances, is ten times bigger than you could ever imagine that it is. It doesn't matter what our senators and representatives say. Uh, The numbers that they report are not the numbers as they stand. Some have said that our national debt may be eight times larger than what our government actually reports because they don't want anyone to freak out and run on the banks. And so you may be one of the people here today that has a payday bar. Can I see the, the few and the proud who are our payday folks? Do we have any payday folks here? Oh, we're getting them out of our pockets here. We got a few here. Uh, two here. One up there, right there. Look at the screen here. Let me tell you something about our payday folks. You're well off. That means you are about 2%, 2% of the U.S. population. Yeah, congratulations, you're in rare territory. Look what else is on the slide here. Statistically, here's several things that you'll note. You adhere to a budget. You're very careful about debt. You avoid debt. You invest early. You're already thinking about retirement, and you're thinking about all kinds of things. You're planning for the future. And the truth is that you are wise with the resources that you've been given. That's a, great, that's a great group to be in, isn't it? Isn't it a tragedy that it's only 2% of our population? You know why it is? 
discontentment. Well, listen, you may not have been in the, um, the top 2%. You may not be one of the payday folks. You might be one of the 100 grand people. Who's my 100 grand people? we got a few more of those out there. All right. Look at this. <clears throat> Congratulations. You may not be in the top 2%, but you're in the next tier down. You're in the top 10%, or you're in the next 10% of the U.S. population. And while you might not be as good off as the, um, as the uh, payday folks, here's some things statistically that are true of you. You paid cash for your car. Your home is paid for. And you have a fully funded emergency fund. If an emergency happens for you, there's no crisis. Because you have actually planned ahead. And when a crisis happens, guess what? You have a crisis fund to be able to deal with something. And you've started saving for your retirement late, but you're going to get there. You're doing okay. So listen, we're into our first two candy bars. And we're talking about 12% of the U.S. population. 10% are our 100 grand folks. 2% are are our payday folks. And guys, here's the news. This is where the good news stops. Okay? How many people have a Nestle Crunch? Some of you, now that I said that it's no more good news, you're not going to raise your hand. All right, how many of you ate your candy bar before the service started? (laughs) All right. Hold up the wrapper at least, you know? When we talk about Nestle Crunch... Unfortunately, you're normal, which means you are completely broke and busted. And here's what's bad, friends. 70% of the U.S. population fits into this category. Here's some statistics that are helpful. Your debt is approximately $30,000. Your annual income is somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000. Those numbers don't jive too well, do they? You'd have to save for three months just to get $1,000 in your emergency fund. And it will take you 70 months or six years to pay off your debt. If you wanted to be debt-free and you, you, you kept going at the pace that you're going right now, uh, you will be paying someone else. You will be in slavery to your debt holder for the next six years. Does that sit good with you? Here's the really troubling news. is It gets much Worse than this. These are the best of the bad news bears. And they're still not in good shape. Because the next category is our zero bars. All right. Be proud. There we go. There we go. Oh, listen. Does anyone know how hard it is to find a zero bar in a grocery store? There were about 18 gas stations that uh, contributed to our zero bar fund this morning. And the zero bar is not a good, is not a good place to be because this means you are bankrupt, you have zero, you have zilch, you have nada. And this is 16% of the U.S. population. So some of you are doing your math here, 2%, 10%, 70%, 16%. Here's some facts about our zeros. It will take 193 months or 16 years to pay off $60,000 in debt. Now, why does it take so long to pay it off? Because you can only pay a little bit each month. You're making the minimum payment on getting that taken care of. So that $60,000, how's it break down? You've got two new car payments, totaling $32,000, $20,000 worth in student loan, and another $8,000 in credit cards. That's not hard to do. Uh, U.S. News and World Report uh, 
has now released a statistic that says that the average new car cost in the United States is $31,000. $31,000. And what's the depreciation? What's it worth five minutes after you sign the dotted line? Not $31,000, that's for sure. And the credit cards are a problem as well. Bankruptcy and money fights are probable for 70% of people. And you know what's most tragic about this? Is that money fights are the number one cause of divorce in the United States. Now, I will admit up front, anytime a church talks about money, you're on thin water. The hate mail will come in. I'm prepared for it. Reed's going to read it all for me in reply. Um, We'll be good. But when a church takes seriously its responsibility to disciple its people financially, you may be saving marriages. I can't tell you how many people I've talked with in this church that the husband and wife have never had a conversation about finances. They don't balance their checkbook. They don't know how much money that they have. And they don't talk about finances because they're not on the same page. Because everybody has their own definition of what it means to save and what it means to spend. They use the same word, but they don't use the same dictionary. It's different. And it, it gets, sadly, worse than our zero bars. Who are my milk duds? <laughs> Where are you? You're not even raising your hand. I know they're gone. There's six of you out there, all right? <clears throat> There we go. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, Milk duds is death by credit. These folks are really in trouble. They are 2% of the U.S. population. They're the the 2% at the very bottom of the barrel. And they have the exact same stats as our zero-bar people with these added extras. $100,000 in credit card debt. Now, at 17 to 24% interest in your minimum monthly payments, how long is it going to take you to pay that off? You're never going to do it. You know what happens to these people? There is so much pressure that they absolutely have no hope. And the truth is this. We, we want to be careful about misapplying this truth. But the Bible says that Christ came to set us free. Now, that certainly applies to the rule of sin and the dominion of Satan over our life. But if God is our Lord, if God is our King, if God is our boss, isn't it smart to at least ask if he's got a plan for what we're supposed to do with our money? Because people think when they come to church, they they, they tip God, they put a little bit in the plate, and then whatever is left over is theirs. Is that true? God, God owns it all. And so what you do with whatever you keep is God's business too. And we've, we've kind of cut that off and said, well, that's private. And what has happened is we've allowed people to deal with their privacy. Good things? No. What is it? 70%? Uh, what, was the, um, what were the zeros? 10%? No, 16%. 88% of the U.S. population is in terrible danger. And listen, churches have got to find a way to talk about this. The truth is, it's, uh, when we talk about contentment, contentment is a bad word in today's consumer-driven society. Contentment is a bad word. Why? Because your chief virtue as an American is that you buy stuff. Stuff that you might even, not even need. 
And researchers say that you see over 3,000 commercial images every single day. You believe that? 3,000 commercial images? We got any NASCAR fans here? You see that on a car. Look at the image here. Right there, man. 500 stickers on that car advertising what? Commercial images. So you drive down the road, you see it on the taxi cabs, you see it on buses, you see it on bus stops, you see it on billboards. You know, you see product placement in your favorite television show. They drink, they're drinking a Coca-Cola. <clears throat> and the goal of these advertisements is to tell you that you need this and you need it yesterday. And you'd better do whatever you can to get this because if you don't have it, people are going to make fun of you because you're going to be an old fuddy-duddy. You don't, have, you don't have the new iPhone. And so you need it and you need it now. And the problem with this current mood is that it's very nearsighted, to use a medical term. It's very nearsighted. You can see this right in front of you and you're not paying attention at all to what the long-term consequences of your rapid spending will be. You've got to pay the bills at some point. And exhibit one related to this is the whole phenomenon of credit cards. Buying stuff that you don't have the cash to pay for. Now, it's been interesting as we've been preparing for this. I told someone last night, I've been, been very depressed talking about people's spending habits and how just busted up their finances are. And had a, had a young lady to share a story. I'm not going to out her. But she said that she, uh, as a teenager, was able to get a credit card on her dad's income with a $3,000 credit line that she maxed out as soon as possible. And then dad started getting his pay deducted. Came home and goes, what in the world is going on? And uh, someone else this week was telling me that when we talk about credit cards, back in the day when he got his first, he had to sit in the office with the store manager for an hour. And he was interviewed by the guy and had to convince him that he was worthy of receiving a credit card to Sears. Now... How many credit card applications did you get in the mail this week? We probably averaged 10 or 12. Every week. It's just too easy. So the truth is we do live in a microwave age that is ready for everything right now. And the truth is, next time you buy a box of Pop-Tarts, look at the instructions, and they'll tell you how to microwave a Pop-Tart. How long does it take to toast a Pop-Tart? Who in the world doesn't have the 30 seconds for that thing to pop out of their toaster that they have to microwave their Pop-Tart? You know what the instructions say? Nuke on high for three seconds. If you're one of those people, you don't have the 30 seconds to pop your Pop-Tart. God bless you. Good grief. And so we come to this issue. What, what is contentment? What is contentment? That's a big word. And we're going to look this morning at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And we're going to read and we're going to explore this passage together. So look with me. Uh, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. Paul says this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance 
and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it does us good to remember a little bit about the background of this passage. Paul composed the letter to the Philippians while he was in prison. He has no freedom. He has no privacy. He has no stuff. And that makes his comments about contentment all that more powerful. And here's what's happened. The believers in Philippi have sent Paul a care package while he's in prison. They know that Paul is stuck, and they send him some stuff to bless him, to encourage him. And it was most likely a financial gift. And Paul, at the conclusion of his letter, knows that it is important to thank them for their gift. But did you notice how he thanked them? He thanked them reservedly. He said, hey, 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 thanks so much for the gift that you sent. But I got to let you know one thing. I didn't really need it. Did you see that? Why doesn't he need it? Because God has supplied all of his needs. And so he wants to say thank you from a human perspective for taking care of me. But realize that God always supplies my needs. Paul's contentment didn't have anything to do with what he owned or what he had. Because at this point in his life he had nothing. And it's really strange because a a content person can make some bold claims of faith even from within the pit of a prison. That God supplies all his needs when he doesn't have one red cent to its person. And so there's four characteristics of contentment that I think we see in this passage that I'd like to just mention here really briefly. And it's this, the first one we've already hinted at. That contentment, being a contented person, means being thankful for what you have. It means being thankful for what you have. Paul starts out by talking about rejoicing in what the Philippians have done for him, in their sharing. One of the things that's just really funny about thankfulness is that the more thankful you are for what you have, the less you're afflicted with the disease called stuffitis. If, if what God has given you, if what you have in your possession, you go, God, you've given me what I need. God, I, I've, I, I've got what I need. It's easier to say no to marketing. It's easier to say no to the latest and greatest. And when you are thankful... You're just less sick with discontentedness. Paul says here, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that at last you have revived your concern for me. Some people see that as Paul maybe rebuking them for not caring for him earlier. And the truth is, it's not a rebuke. Paul was a hard man to get a hold of. He'd go from this city to that city, and there were no banks, there was no GPS. They didn't know where Paul was. And so finally, when Paul got put in prison, he was in one place long enough for them to help him out. And so it's not that he was rebuking them. They were always ready, as verse 10 says, but they lacked the opportunity. They probably had sent a guy following him around, and they were always one town behind wherever Paul was. And so they were intent on helping. The opportunity had just not arisen. But Paul says, 
I am thankful for what you have done. And I see God's hand in you providing for my needs. Number two, contentment requires trusting the master, not MasterCard. Contentment requires trusting the master, not MasterCard. Did you see how Paul rejoiced in verse 10? He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul's rejoicing is in the Lord. Paul Paul knew that as a church planter, he had every right to solicit from the various churches that he had planted to support him so that he didn't have to work. But he also knew that Christianity was such a new religion that people would cast a despairing eye upon him, thinking that the only reason he was planting churches was for his financial gain. And so he knew what people would say about his motives if he did so. And so Paul, instead of trusting the churches to provide his needs, ultimately trusted God to completely take care of him. He didn't say, hey, Philippian church, I'm in trouble. Uh, And by the way, do you remember all the stuff that I did for you? You think you can help me out, return the favor? No. God brought up in the Philippians' heart to provide this gift for Paul. Paul was completely dependent upon the master to meet his needs. And the truth is that one of the ways God meets our needs is by telling us to listen to his word and for us to use common sense. The Bible says this, Proverbs 21, 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Precious oil and treasure are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The truth is, it's only fools that don't save for a rainy day. A wise man always has something for what may come up. The Bible says you need to save. You need to prepare for the future. And preparing for the future is not not trusting God. You trust God by making the most out of what He has already entrusted to you. You don't make yourself a burden to your friends and your family because you are wise with what God has given you. And when you do this, when you are content and prepared, what happens when emergencies strike? You're prepared for it. According to our statistics that we talked about with our candy bars, 88% of Americans, if a $5,000 emergency happened, they would have no idea how to take care of that besides borrowing money or putting it on a credit card. That's not good. So Paul is indeed grateful for the Philippians' gift, but he says very clearly that he does not need it because God is the one who ultimately takes care of him. And there's a funny thing about doing things God's way. You're always taken care of when you do things the way God instructs. If you learn to manage your finances God's way, you'll find out something really interesting that the economists have not kind of picked up on yet. When you do things God's way, it works in up economies. And guess what? It works in down economies too. There's something amazing that happens when you spend less than you make. And that's rocket science today. Because you have the ability to buy things that you can't afford and have no idea how you will pay off doesn't mean that you should. So you'll be amazed at how God provides for you if you just look at how God has already provided 
for you. If you want to live like a millionaire, and God has not given you the capacity, the income to live like a millionaire, guess what? It is not God's will for you to live like a millionaire. It doesn't matter what kind of home equity lines of credits you, you have. It doesn't matter how much you can extend uh, the capacity of your credit card. Don't do it. God wants you to live within your means. That's how God has crafted you to survive, to trust Him. Not your line of credit. Number three. This is the one that will get me in trouble. Contentment comes through generous giving. You know, you know what the sickness of money is? Somebody asked Norman Rockefeller, one of the richest men, men to ever live in our country, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? One dollar more. Because what does money do? Money's primary goal is to not be lonely. So if there's one dollar in your wallet, it wants two. If there's two, it wants four. If there's four, it wants eight. And so money by its very nature is accumulative. It wants, it wants to get more. And the best way to show that you own your money and that your money doesn't own you is to be generous. Some of you, when you came in this morning, I want no candy bar. I don't eat, I don't eat sweets. Take the candy bar. Give it to a kid, and you know what? You are Superman now. We have such an individualistic approach that we don't say, hey, you know what? Hey, free candy bar? I I don't need it, but you know what? I'm going to use it. I'm going to be content, and I'm going to give it to somebody else who could really use it. Giving does something to your mindset. And I'm not here talking specifically or exclusively about giving to your church. Maybe you have a neighbor that has had a tough week. Give of your time. Go cut their yard. We've got a radio station in town that does this. Uh, I forget what they call it, but it's you do stuff for do stuff at the drive-through. You pay for the person's meal behind you. You know, so when you pull up to pay for the meal, you say, "Hey, what's this guy's what's this guy's tab behind me?" And then when they pull up, their meal's paid for. Or you're going through a toll lane, and, and you say, "Hey, listen, can I pay the toll for the guy behind me? I don't know. I don't have any clue who he was." I'm just a Christian, and I want to find a way to bless somebody. Giving changes your mindset from get, get, get to give. And when you give, guess what you do? You demonstrate contentment with what God has given you. What you are saying when you give is that God has given me enough for my needs, and I still have a little bit left over that I can do something to help someone else out. If you don't give, guess what? You're proving that you're discontent. That God has not given you enough that you have to hoard it all for yourself. And you know what, man? I really wish I could help that kid. He could use a pair of new shoes, but you know what? Maybe somebody else will come along. When you're content, when you trust that God has provided for you, you have the opportunity to provide for someone else. And the truth is, Psalm 24.1 says that God doesn't need anything that you have. Psalm 24.1 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. So you can't give him anything that is not his already. 
You need to give to avoid discontentment. And that's why Paul rejoices in the Lord greatly. He says, hey, listen, Philippians, thank you so much for giving for my needs. But you know what? God has already supplied my needs. But I'm really excited that you're doing this. Why? Because it says more about the heart of the Philippians than the size of the check. They are willing to sacrifice for Paul, for the cause of the gospel that they're glad to give. They're glad to be generous. Paul is rejoicing in their gift, not for personal reasons for himself, but because it shows an eagerness on their part to cooperate with him in the gospel. Because while they're broke, the Philippians were not a lavish church. They were content with what God had given them, and they were able to give to someone else. Our greatest contentment... should really come from using our stuff wisely and finding ways to bless others instead of just gathering stuff for our own benefit. Fourth, contentment is a spiritual attitude that comes from connection to Christ. Do you see this? Why is Paul so content? He ends with verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's contentment is not some form of self-sufficiency. Paul doesn't have a rich aunt that he goes, you know what, I'm not worried about anything because all i got to do is call my aunt and she's going to bail me out. She's going to take care of my needs. You know what, I need to get back to Jerusalem. Yeah, she'll buy, me, she'll buy me a cruise ticket. I'll be good to go. Paul's contentment comes from his connection to Christ. He is not self-sufficient. He is Christ-sufficient. And in this verse, he is affirming that Christ in any and every situation and circumstances, circumstance is enough. Is enough. And this morning, as you look at your finances, if you go, I need Jesus plus $40,000, you're not, you're not trusting in the king. If Jesus never promised to give you anything else, would he be enough for you? As Christians, we have to say overwhelmingly, yes, he provides everything that we need. He supplies adequate strength for the challenges that we face. He gives us what we need to get done what we're called to do. And I love this definition of contentedness. Contentedness is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to one's current circumstances. Did you get that? Contentedness is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to current circumstances. It arises from a humble disposition. I don't need that new stuff. What I've got is good enough. I'm humble in my disposition. It comes from a consideration of God's providence... And it comes from reflecting upon the sufficiency of the gospel. You want to be content? Keep your desires where they need to be. Not over there. Keep them here. Be humble in your inner disposition. Consider God's many blessings, His his providence and what He has given to you already. And reflect upon the fact that the gospel is sufficient. It will save your soul. It will will give you peace with God. 
And Paul is saying here, as he says to the Philippians, God has met my needs. And he will meet yours too. He will meet your needs. So three things, briefly, in conclusion, that I think are important for us as a church to learn about contentment. The first is this, contentment must be learned. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, uh, verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Listen, if the Apostle Paul had to learn how to be content, it's not going to come natural to you. If Paul said, listen, I'm a missionary, I'm a theologian, I wrote half the New Testament, but I had to learn how to be content. Do you think you're going to walk out of here after hearing one simple sermon? You go, I got this contentment thing down. I got it. 100%. You got to learn it. Here's a question. Are you willing to enroll in the school of contentedness today? That's the biggest question. Where's your heart on this issue? Are you willing to enroll in the school, go to class, and do the homework? Contentment must be learned. Contentment can be learned. You know what contentedness is the opposite of? Covetousness. Last time I checked in my Bible, that was still a sin. Coveting someone's car. Man, I wish I lived in that neighborhood. Man, I wish I had, I wish I had that technology. Man, I wish I had this thing. <clears throat> I wish my life was like that. That's covetousness. And the truth is, it is hard to learn contentedness because the world will not teach you. The world's not going to teach you how to be content. What's the world going to teach you to do? Get what you can as quickly as you can, however you can. And if you can't afford it, charge it. Darn the consequences. Get it! Be discontent. An instant gratification is certainly a short-term perspective. The second kind of application that we have to realize besides contentment must be learned is that contentment will cost you. Contentment will cost you. Listen, contentment sounds great, but don't go into this blind because you have have to learn to say no to yourself and you have to look past the stuff that you want right now. Short-term solutions almost always equal long-term problems. But you know what? Long-term solutions, you know what they do? They produce short-term discomfort. If you're used to buying stuff that isn't in your budget, and you're going to start this, you have a long-term perspective, and you go, man, I need this. Not in the budget. Save up for two or three months, and then you can buy it. Man, I don't want to wait two or three months. I want it right now. There's some short-term discomfort, but it promises a long-term solution. Last but certainly not least, contentment is a choice. Contentment is a choice. And I think we could probably pose a couple different choices against each other, but I've picked three. You've got the opportunity to choose between God or being greedy for goods. What do you want? Do you want God or do you want goods? Do you want God or do you want stuff? Because the Bible says you can't love two masters. Do you want peace or do you want possessions? Because what's so strange is marriages will get shot down in a ball of flames 
chasing possessions instead of pursuing peace. Instead of living within their means and having the kind of relationship that they want, they look at stuff and they chase after that. Do you want joy or do you want junk? Because the truth is, most of the stuff you buy today is going to be in someone's yard sale tomorrow. It's not worth, you, worth what you pay for it. So what we want to do as a church, <clears throat> beginning today, continuing for the next nine weeks, is we want to put as many people as are willing to do it through boot camp. Through boot camp. We want to help you understand how to balance a checkbook. We want to help you understand how to live within a budget. Now, for some of you, this sounds like, like first grade, like kindergarten financial stuff. The truth is... <clears throat> You, work, you get that stuff working, and you've won probably 50% of the battle. And, and, and people, are not, people are not doing this. They're not learning how to not be a burden upon other people. They're not learning how to be content in their jobs. And so beginning tonight at 5 o'clock, we're using a, a nine-week small group strategy called Financial Peace University. Uh, it's open to whoever wants to take it. There's a cost that's involved with the class. It's $89 uh, for a nine-week class. But it goes from everything from point A to point Z when it comes to finances. It talks about how to balance your checkbook. It talks about how to plan for retirement. And our motive in this is simply to help people. When 88% of our country, <laughs> Nestle Crunch, zero, or a milk dud, that's not good. And we have the opportunity to do more than just teach people how to manage their money. We've got the opportunity to teach people how to honor God with 100% of what they have. So if you haven't signed up for that, and that's something that's interesting to you. Listen, we're, we're not going to twist any arms. But we don't want to be a church that simply offers a class over here that five people get to take. We want these kind of financial principles, these kinds of spiritual principles to characterize our church. Guys, today, if we were a content church, and that happens because we have content people, would that glorify God? If we helped save marriages because we helped a young couple get on the same page when it comes to their finances, and, and their motivation is to live within their means and to learn how to be generous with what God has richly provided for them. And it saves a marriage and it makes generous Christians. Is it worth it? Absolutely. For some of you, listen, we know that this is not your cup of tea. We get that. God bless you. Thank you for allowing your church to do this. I would very humbly say we have a number of people who can't afford to take an $89 class. You can... Give money to our crisis team, and you can help to provide a scholarship for someone who is in such terrible financial straits that they can't even afford to take an $89 class. And so tonight, and continuing for the next nine weeks, thank you, Sunday School teachers, for teaching through this material. We want to teach what the Bible has to say about this. And we want to claim the promise that God didn't just come to save our souls. He came to give us an abundance of of life. And that comes exactly like Paul said, from being connected to Christ. So this morning you may be here and you may say, man, listen, financial peace sounds 
great. But having peace with God? That's incredible. And listen, you can't put a price on that. Peace with God? That's awesome. But as it said, people who serve the Prince of Peace should know his peace in every area of their life, including their finances. So this morning, if you're one of these people who perhaps doesn't know the Prince of Peace, a person who's struggling with financial peace, we want to help, but we can't come where we're not invited. And so as we have this invitation this morning, it's a chance for you to respond to God's Word. Maybe you realize man, I'm spoiled rotten and I'm not content with anything. Please realize if that's your attitude, you're telling God that he's not enough for you and that he hasn't done a good job providing for you. This is your opportunity to repent and say, God, I want to trust you. That's a prayer he loves to hear and that's an attitude that he longs to respond to. So let's pray and respond as the Holy Spirit draws you. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word, Lord. You Only you know how much we need to be more content. Content in our achievements, uh, content in our employment, content in our relationships, uh, content in our relationship with you, knowing that we're in right relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that as we begin this sermon series, seeking to honor you in all things, that you will draw your people to yourself, that you will help people to respond to the call of the gospel and the call to your lordship and understand that they have lived life their own way long enough and they've messed it up and you offer a new start and a way to begin afresh with new principles, with new goals, with a new king. In Jesus' name we pray.